Good morning. I'm reading this morning from Psalm 51. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 474 and in the following Jesus Bible on page 586. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, your delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will, then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if little ones, first grade and under, would like to go over for children's worship, if you guys want to line up behind Miss Brittany... She and Miss Savannah will take you guys over for children's worship. Now, remember, parents, uh, you, do they have, so process-wise, do parents need to pick them up after children's worship and take them to Sunday school, or they can go straight to their Sunday school classes? Excellent. All right. Thanks, Miss Brittany. Thank you very much. Well, uh, before I had children, I knew everything about children and parenting. Uh, now, uh, after nine years, almost ten years of doing this, uh, of having kids, I have gray hairs, and I know mostly nothing about children and parenting. Uh, one lesson that I've learned is that every child responds differently to discipline. You know, what works for one child won't necessarily work for them all. Stiff-necked child. Uh, this is the child who is resistant to discipline. When you discipline them, they become all the more resolute to defy your expectations. The second child is the compliant child. 
they respond to discipline, they recognize their failure, they begin to make a change very swiftly. And even as I'm talking, you're probably thinking about your own children, your grandchildren, perhaps my children, uh, but I'm actually talking about you. Are you open and responsive to God's discipline in your life when it happens? Last week we saw in Hebrews chapter 12 that God is faithful to discipline his children. He will not let Christians continue in sin, but will through various means help them to see and feel the danger and pain of their sin so that they repent. And my goal this morning is to soften some stiff necks, to prepare you and to train your heart, not for if discipline comes, but for when discipline comes. But why does God discipline us? Why is it that when we are sinning continually that he interjects himself in these many ways to help us see the danger and pain of our sin? Well, he doesn't discipline us so that we will live this kind of dour, moping, puritanical life. No, he wants to cultivate something else in us. I mean, just think about good parents. They don't discipline their kids so that their children will be living this kind of nervy, fear-filled life, always trying to obey at every turn. That's not what parents are trying to generate in their children. No, they discipline their children so that they will live life as it was intended to be lived. They discipline their children so that they would live life in a wise way. They discipline their children to protect them in the future. These are all very positive, constructive, life-enriching reasons for which just normal folks like us discipline their kids. Well, God does a very similar thing for us. The reasons for which he disciplines us are very constructive, life-enriching. It helps us to live life the way it was meant to be lived. So we're going to dig into that this week and next. Well, first, God disciplines us in this way. God disciplines us uh, in, a, in an effort to arouse our faith. I guess I should read my sheet as I'm preaching. God's discipline in our lives should arouse our faith. So when he disciplines us, that's something he's trying to draw out of us. And that might sound counterintuitive. I mean, discipline is painful. It's evident in this psalm that David is in pain following this discipline. So how would discipline arouse and provoke faith within us? Well, let's look at the example of David. So last week, we saw how God disciplined David through the prophet Nathan. So David had committed some horrendous sins, adultery and murder by proxy. So God sent Nathan the prophet to confront him, to point out his sin, to expose what David had so perfectly covered up. Well, now Nathan has exited the scene, and sometime shortly thereafter, David writes Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's response to God's discipline in his life. And if this psalm has not been large in in your spiritual life, if it hasn't played a big part in your spiritual life, let me commend it to you. Uh, Because this psalm looms large in the canon of Scripture as a text that has been vitally important, not just to me, but to the church through the generations. And if one thing stands out in David's response to God's discipline— You can certainly hear his faith. Look at the beginning of the psalm. I'll actually begin with the title that we believe is is original to the text, more than likely. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Now, clearly here he's feeling pain. He feels the weight of discipline. He's, he's asking for mercy. But according to what? According to God's steadfast love. Now, it's time for some deep-cut trivia. If you were here for Advent 2017 and you, rem- and you kept your notes and you've been reviewing them every week as you should, uh, now is your time to shine. Uh, so kids, kids in the room, how many, anybody, any of you happen to know the name of David's great-grandmother? All right. We can, we're going to branch out to the grown-ups. The kids don't know. Uh, Joe? No, that was, that was his mistress. Different story. All right, same story currently. Uh, grown-ups, anybody know the name of David's great-grandmother? Ruth, that is correct. And her story in the Bible is right before 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. It's a book conveniently called Ruth. And what is that story about? The story of Ruth is about God's steadfast love, which David mentions here. Now, here's the real question from Advent 2017. Does anybody know the Hebrew word that is translated steadfast love in the Old Testament? That's right. How about that? Man, oh, man. But you've got to get the H right. It's got that throaty kind of thing. It's chesed, right? Yeah, that's right. What is chesed? You might have cheated and looked at the next point. The chesed of Yahweh God is his persistent presence and generosity. It's the love of familial relationship. To really unpack the word chesed, is, is it, it's a bit of a mouthful. It's like your parents and your grandparents. It's someone who's always there always showing up for you, always generous. No matter what, they love and love and love. They're always there. They never leave you. They never forsake you. It's steadfast love. So you see it translated steadfast love throughout the Old Testament. And when David says to God, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, what's he saying? He's saying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your chesed, according to the same love you had for my great-grandmother Ruth, as you were faithful to her, show your mercy to me, O God. As you were faithful to my ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Judah, have mercy on me as you were merciful to them. He looks back on God's faithfulness time and time and time again throughout the generations to his people, and he asks God to be faithful to him in the same way. And when you look back on David's lineage, he didn't come from a a line of good guys. He was born to a line of scoundrels, deceivers, prostitutes, and sinners. Yet God chose them. God loved them like family. And he brought his promises to bear in their lives. So when discipline happens to David, he's heard this story before. This is his family's story. He knows the pattern of people royally screwing up their lives and turning to Yahweh God, and he forgives and restores and makes things right. So when he is disciplined, oddly enough, his faith is aroused. He's heard this story before. And what's the story? It's this. God only disciplines those that he loves like family. His discipline is a sign of his love. 
If you're not a child of God, God doesn't discipline you. You'll sin and you won't feel bad about it. You'll sin and things seem great. Hebrews 12 tells us he disciplines those that he loves. And you know this to be true. Psalm 73 talks about the plight of those whom God doesn't love. Those who are outside of his family and are opposed to him. And what does it say about them at the beginning of Psalm 73, which is another fantastic psalm, by the way. These wicked people, these arrogant people, they're rich. They have power. They're beautiful. They have everything they want. They have no problems at all. But how does their story end, according to Psalm 73? Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Well, that's horrible. But that's what happens when you get away with sin. This is what happens when discipline doesn't happen. When a parent doesn't discipline their child, what does it set them up for? It sets them up for failure and destruction. And the same is true for you and your Heavenly Father. If you are never disciplined, if you're simply allowed to continue in sin and flourish in sin, what happens? You're building a house of cards that, while it may look great for a time, eventually can't stand under its own weight, and it collapses on you. God won't let his children do that. He loves his children, so he disciplines them. God only disciplines those whom he has purchased with the blood of his Son. So if you see his discipline in your life, realize what that tells you. You're loved. (laughs) You're a member of the family of God purchased by Christ. He loves you with his chesed, which means he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is your father, and he loves you. But there's another thing worth noting and believing when you experience discipline, and it's this, that God only disciplines those whom he intends to cleanse from guilt and shame. Last week we talked about how when discipline happens, we suddenly see our guilt and shame again uh, for our sin. We get a good look at ourselves when God disciplines us. We see things in us that we didn't know were there or things that we were desperately trying to hide. And we described how this happened last week. Maybe a, a loved one calls us out something. Maybe the scriptures or a sermon or some other means of grace exposes our sin and we're confronted with our shame, with how foolish and immature and wretched we've been. We're confronted with our guilt of how yet once more we've fallen short of God's law or of the, the example of Christ. And that generates sorrow, sorrow over our sin. And the fancy word for that is penitence. It is good And right for a Christian to feel bad when they sin. I don't want you to feel good (laughs) about sinning. But to what effect does God intend for us to live as Martin Luther did early in his life, just overwhelmed by a sense of dread and spiritual impotence because of our sin? No, that's not what he's trying to generate in us. The sorrow that God causes through discipline is intended to drive us to the cross of Christ where our guilt and shame are washed away. Look again to our psalm, verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me 
from my sin. So David, confronted by his guilt and shame because of the discipline through Nathan, what does he do? He asks for relief. He asks to be cleansed. And how does God respond? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God confronts our sins so that we would flee to Jesus, confess our sins, and experience the cleansing power of the cross. God wants us to feel internally the shame and guilt of our sins so that we would believe the gospel and feel once more our forgiveness that we have been set free. Do you realize that Jesus bore our shame on the cross? The shame that you feel in discipline, Jesus endured it. He was stripped naked. He was mocked, beaten, and spat upon. That shame that he was enduring in those moments, that was your shame. That was my shame. And when he died on the cross, paying a punishment for whom? It was us. His death occurred because of our guilt. So when we are disciplined, and feel sorrow over our guilt and shame, that sorrow is an invitation to faith, to believe the gospel for yourself, to remember the promise of cleansing in the cross of Christ. So God's discipline in our lives should arouse our faith. So when you experience his discipline, don't stiffen your neck. Don't become more resolute in your sin. No, remember his hesed and the cleansing work of the cross. If he disciplines you, it's because he loves you. God's discipline in our lives should arouse our faith. But that's not all. God's discipline in our lives should also arouse our hope. Now, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, and while our English translations of the Bible are really, really good, occasionally you'll find a little anomaly here or there. And I want to point one out. In the middle of verse 6 in this psalm, the Hebrew switches to future tense verbs, and those future tense verbs continue throughout verse 8. This isn't reflected throughout in the ESV, but it is in the New American Standard Bible. So I want us to look at that English translation together um, of these uh, three verses. This is uh, verses 6 through 8 in the New American Standard. Pay attention to the future tenses. Behold... You desire, this is David, again, continuing the psalm. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in secret, you will make wisdom known to me. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Cleanse me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. So David is reeling from God's discipline. He is experiencing a loss of joy that no doubt had already begun when he had sinned. He's under this pressure of of feeling his guilt and his shame. But even in the midst of this, David begins to speak hopefully about the future. He even begins to speak hopefully about himself. God will teach him wisdom. God will cleanse him. God will heal his bones and restore his joy and gladness. David responds to God's discipline with hope. He doesn't say, man, I'm I'm never going to get better. This is never going to change. I'm just a screw up like everybody else in my family. No, he says, I'm going to be changed. God's going to do something new in me. This is hope. What is hope? 
Hope isn't wishful thinking. It's convinced expectations of the future because of what God has done in the past, right? So faith looks backward so that we can look forward in hope. So David is looking backward. He's thinking back on what God has done not only in his life but in the life of his predecessors. He looks back to Ruth. He looks back to Abraham. He looks back to Jacob. And what does he see? People who went back to God in repentance and confession, and then God changed their lives. I mean, look at Jacob. Holy moly. What a a, a life of transformation. David sees that in the past, and because God was faithful in that way then, he can expect that God is going to be faithful to him in the future. So these are convinced expectations of the future because of what God has done in the past. And guess what? We're doing the same thing right now. We're looking at the life of David. This happened a long, long time ago. We see, we're going to see how God was faithful to David then. And if God was faithful to David, then he can do the same thing for you. So what God did in David's life, we can expect God to be the same faithful God today. That's what hope is. It's not wishful thinking. It's convinced expectations of the future because of what God has done in the past. And what did God do in David's life that he intends to do in yours? What hope can you have because of this story? Here it is. God disciplines people whom he intends to transform, revive, and restore to himself. These are the people that he disciplines. Just listen to the hope of David. This hope that you have in Christ. I'll read from the ESV this time, verses 7 through 12. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. These requests of David are not merely wishful thinking. They're the solid hope of everyone who trusts Yahweh God. So when God disciplines you, when he lays your sin bare and makes you to feel its shame, guilt, and pain, he's intending to stir up your hopes that you can be different that he has set you free from your sin in Christ, that he intends to transform you now and forever. So in this life, before you die, he intends to make you more and more like Jesus. And then again, in eternity, you will be forever set free from your sin. In the resurrection, you will no longer be bound by your fleshly desires. You will no more be tempted. You will be set free. So those who have been disciplined by God have transformation to look forward to. But not just transformation, also reviving. The pain of discipline will not last forever, but will give way to joy, to a new heart that wants to obey God, to a sense that things have been been put right within us. This is something, again, that we experience in increasing measure in this life, but fully in the next. Those who are disciplined have healing and rest ahead of them. And all of this, of course, is an effect of being in communion with God. There's so much in this psalm. It's worth meditating on, memorizing. It's such a beautiful psalm. But you can really feel the sense of tension between God and David. 
David realizes that what he has done is very much a relational offense and, and, and offense against the holiness of God. But we also see in here this hope that they're going to be back together again. They're going to be reconnected once more. And when God forgives us and cleanses us, he draws us near to himself that we might know his love. It's reminiscent of a parent after discipline embracing their child to communicate their deep love. And it's from thence that all of our transformation and reviving flows. Those who are disciplined by God have all these hopes ahead of them in this life and in the next. And is this not the end of all our desiring? As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. And when God disciplines us, that's his intent, to draw us away from sin and back to himself, the one who gives us everything we need. So when God disciplines us, don't bristle up, don't stiffen your neck. No, God's discipline in our lives should arouse our faith and hope. But last, God's discipline in our lives should arouse our love. Now, David's sin was a remarkable failure to love. He failed to love his, uh, his God. He failed to love his citizen Bathsheba. He failed to love Uriah, whom we see elsewhere in 2 Samuel, was one of David's most faithful and effective soldiers. Really and truly, every sin is a failure to love. And so when God disciplines us, we should expect that he desires to cultivate love in us. But how? Well, first, when a person is living in the faith and hope that we described earlier, the natural result of that is love for God. David does not deserve forgiveness. It's kind of nuts that God doesn't just, like, smite him from the earth after what he's done. The sins that he committed in 2 Samuel 11 are remarkably reprehensible. And yet God drew near to him. And completely against common sense, God loved David. And while your sins and mine might not seem as extreme as David's, our sins are no less damning. They are no less unholy. And yet in Christ, forgiveness has been granted to us. And when you recognize the magnitude of God's familial love for us, when you see the the hope that we have in this life and the next because of the work of Christ, we cannot help but love God in response. Listen to how David responds to God's discipline with love in verses 14 and 15. You can follow along if you like. David says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Like he realized blood guiltiness is a big crime. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The overflow of David's faith and hope is worship, also known as love for God. He cannot help but praise his Redeemer. Why? Because his sin was so great. If God wipes this thing out, he can't help but praise God. But worship, as we saw some weeks ago, isn't just about me. It's also about the people around me. My worship impacts others. Look at verses 13 through 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So David recognizes that if he worships God for what he has done, 
There are others who are going to hear this story. Other sinners just like him are going to hear of God's great forgiving power. And this is not just love for God. This is love for his neighbor to tell him the good news of what God has done. It's not uncommon for people to tell me, not, not, I'm not talking about just congregants here. Uh, Christians all over will, will ask me, sometimes in worship, I, I, I just don't feel worshipful. There's some kind of feeling that they're looking for, and, and I'll say, well, are you talking about love for God? <laughs> is, is that what you're talking about? Is, is that, what, that is the feeling that worship is meant to evoke. And if we don't have a sense of love for God, it, it's not actually about the, the music or the creed or the liturgy or the whatever that's happening in the space. What it has to do with is you and God. And what it gets back to is the question of, do you realize how big of a sinner you are (laughs) and how much you've been forgiven? You know, as Jack Miller was wont to say, cheer up. You're worse than you think you are. And God's grace for you is way bigger than you could ever imagine. When we begin to get a glimpse of how great our sin is and how even greater our Savior is, our gut response must be a love for God that makes us want to worship him. And that's what we're seeing in David here. When a person realizes the great debt that they've been forgiven, they suddenly find themselves concerned not just for God's beauty, but also for the forgiveness of sinners just like them. And that transforms their worship. They want others to know, and they want to make the glory of God known through the way that they talk, through the way that they sing, through the way that they live, and through the way that they worship. Do you struggle with looking down on sinners? The antidote to looking down on sinners is to remember your own sin, to remember your guilt, your shame, and your forgiveness, something that God does through discipline. There's no greater evangelistic motivator than remembering the great debt that we have been forgiven. So also David, whose sins were great, was excited to praise the Savior who was greater and to make that Savior known to other transgressors. This is a love for neighbor that springs forth from God's discipline. This is a love for the glory of God that compels us to tell other sinners the good news. As it turns out, discipline is a key part of how God grows his children, just like any good parent. He doesn't discipline us to punish us. He doesn't discipline us to vent his wrath. He does it out of love to shape us as Christ followers. God's discipline in our lives should arouse faith, hope, and love. So the next time you sense God's discipline in your life, don't don't be offended. Don't stiffen your neck. Rather, realize God's care for you. He does this for your good because he loves you like family, intending to cleanse you, transform you, revive you, and restore you to himself. And the end of it all will not only be your own growth, not only just a growth in holiness, but also a growth in love for God and love for other sinners who desperately need God's grace. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the grace that has been made ours through the work of Christ. Lord, we thank you that you're faithful to discipline us. Help us to have the eyes of faith to see that as a sign of your care so that we would respond appropriately with faith, remembering that you love us, 
that you discipline us with an intent to cleanse us and to transform us, that we would respond with hope, that we would see that we can be different and you're showing us a different way. But perhaps even more than those two things, Lord, I pray that you would cultivate in us love, love for you, the great Redeemer and Savior and lover of our souls, and love for other sinners like us, especially those who don't know your forgiveness. May your discipline in our lives awaken us to that great need that your name and David went through such pain in this life. But we thank you that you preserved this story so that we might learn from it. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.